David Nasser tells about his life story. He entitles it, I Escaped from Iran, but not from God. That's, that's uh, I think we could all put our, our, our place in there, you know. I, I escaped from Harvey, Illinois, but not from God. You could put your name in there, right? Wherever you are, wherever you will be, um, you think uh, you've got control. But listen, man, God loves you so much, uh, he's coming after you, which is a good thing. It's good. It's good. So David says, I was nine years old when I decided that I hated God. That's not good. I hated him because I believed he hated me first. Maybe you're here this morning, and you kind of identify with David's response. Maybe you hate God. Maybe you feel God's ripped you off, uh, whatever the case may be. So hating God doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, as you'll find out. It was 1979, the middle of the Iranian Revolution. The Ayatollah Khomeini and his uh, followers had overthrown the government, seized political power. Hundreds of thousands of people in Iran, their lives were turned upside down. And it was full of chaos in the process. David said, my father was a military officer in the previous regime, which made him a target for the new power and authority. In fact, the Revolutionary Guards had whisked one of my father's colleagues off to a public park, brutally tortured him, and he died seven hours later. That was a flare in the air to the Nasser family. And David's father said, we've got to get out of here somehow, some way to survive. And so his dad devised a plan of escape Uh, Fortunately, miraculously, they were able to get out of Iran to Switzerland. And so they sought the American embassy and uh, applied for political asylum. But the United States at the time wasn't allowing Iranians to come into the country. And so after a while, David's mother came up with this idea. She said, uh, hey, why don't we pray to the God of America named Jesus? Maybe he would let us into his country. Kind of interesting, huh? Now, her plan sounded a little silly, but it worked because one week later, they were flying to America. They moved to Texas, and um, David went to high school, and shortly after high school, he graduated, and he was kind of uh, discouraged, downcast, and one of his friends noticed it, went up to him and said, hey, man, what's going on? How come you're so down? And he explained, well, it seems like all my friends are moving away, and I'm kind of feeling isolated. So his friend suggested, David, hey, how about coming to church with me tomorrow morning? I think, I think you'll like it. And so David said, despite my religious baggage, I conceded to go, of course, with my parents' approval. And uh, to my utter shock, they didn't shoot down the idea. Unbeknownst to David, he says this, that some people from this church had been dining at the restaurant where my father owned. When they noticed he was shorthanded, they left their seats, picked up towels, and began waiting and bussing tables throughout the lunch hour. For days, they kept returning and serving. Eventually, the music minister invited my father to the Wednesday night choir practice. My father felt obliged, and so he went. And there the choir director explained the restaurant's need for temporary help and volunteers covered the next two weeks. Their kindness touched my father's heart. It's good. It's good. And so David, on Sunday morning, walked in to this church. He found Larry No, which which was a friend of his from high school. Larry had a huge reputation in that community because he had been very vocal about his faith as well. And so David sat next to Larry. Larry shared his Bible with him, kind of moved through the pages where the pastor uh, had a different variety of texts so that uh, David wouldn't get lost in the process. On Monday night, a group of young men came to David's house from the church 
and uh, shared the gospel with him, even though David wasn't interested at all. And so they kept coming every Monday night. They showed up telling David about the love of Jesus Christ. And so one Sunday, David was at church again, and the pastor invited people to place their faith in Christ, and David really felt uncomfortable, so he slipped out quickly, was driving home thinking, man, I'm finished with this church stuff. It's all over. So when he got home, he got the Bible that these guys had given to him, uh, went out to the back deck, uh, poured lighter fluid all over it, and was about to light a match and torch the thing, because I'm done, you know. He said, finished. But there was something inside him where instead of lighting the match, he opened the Bible. And he landed where Peter is getting out of the boat and he's walking on the water towards Jesus. And um, David says, man, something happened when I read that. I, it came alive. God was calling me to step out of myself, out of my excuses, and move towards this relationship with Christ. So that night, in my bedroom, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And so my father came to me when I told him that I had become a Christian. He said, uh, David, you can't be a Christian. You're a Muslim. Um, you, you just can't do that. And so assuming that David would get over it, you know, over a period of time, he would slip away, uh, he let me keep going to church, let me keep reading my Bible. Until on a Sunday morning, I told him, Dad, I'm going to go get baptized. And so uh, when I arrived home from church that afternoon, my father had a duffel bag packed for me with all my clothes in it. He told me that I was dead to him and I had to leave our house. And so that night I called Larry No, the dude who welcomed him at this church, told him he was homeless. He invited me to come live with him. And so the next few months, Larry discipled me, mentored me, helped me grow in my faith with the Lord. Meanwhile, one by one, uh, God started saving my family. First, my sister placed her faith in Christ. Then my mother and my brother placed their faith in Christ. And so the three of us began to pray relentlessly for my father. And eventually, he too gave his life to Christ. This is what David says. God, in his amazing grace, has turned my family's tragedy into testimony. Though I hated him as a child, I can see now that he was holding us all along. Isn't that cool? So where's David today? David Nassar is Senior Vice President for Spiritual Development at Liberty University. Amazing. God took a boy from Iran who hated him, transplanted him to the United States, and now he's serving at a Christian university, a solid follower of Christ, along with his family. Guess what? God's doing that in many lives. He wants to do it in your life as well. And so this morning, we're going to continue from last Sunday in our talk in the book of Colossians, encouraged to pray and tell, talking to God and to people. Let's go to the book of Colossians chapter 4. Picking it up at verse 2. So on the back of your program, there's an outline. You can fill in the blanks, and we encourage you to do that, to stay laser-focused in the talk this morning. So let's, uh, let's pick it up, Colossians 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. And that is why I am here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. For your word, we thank you, Lord, for Paul's life and how he wrote the epistles of the New Testament so that we can learn more about you. And we're doing that this morning, Lord. So help us to be 
alert and conscious of the fact that you're here. And your desire is to make us more like you. Lord, we give you permission to do that. And I pray if there's any David Nassers here this morning who are here because they hate you, Lord, by your spirit, will you touch their heart as you touch David's. Move them closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Just a quick review from last Sunday. Paul is in Rome under house arrest. The year is 60 AD. He's writing to the church in Colossae. And you can see on the map where that is. Modern-day Turkey today, and um, Turkey's still there, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so is Colossae, and uh, you could go there and see the place that uh, Paul sent the letter. The church was under a lot of uh, duress. There were a lot of issues hitting the fan. Paul had heard about those things from prison. And so because he was under house arrest, he couldn't go to them personally, so instead he writes a letter, and that's where we get the book of Colossians. Aren't you glad for that? Yeah. It's a great book. It's a great letter. And so in Colossians 2.7, Paul uh, kind of summarizes what he's writing to the church, and it's, let your roots grow down into him, into who? Jesus. Let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. So there it is, the church in Colossae, and a life church needs that as well, don't we? And uh, this morning, as we look at uh, the point we made last week, may prayer a habit. Verse 2a, let's read that together. Devote yourselves to prayer. This chapter... Chapter 4, Paul is addressing the church for us to communicate with God and to our world. And the very heart of communication with God is prayer. It's talking to God. It's God talking back to us. The idea here for devoting yourselves to prayer is persistence in prayer, continual prayer, unwilling to give up prayer. Even when your prayers seem to go unanswered, we need to pray. And the cool thing is that we can come to God not sounding super spiritual and using all these affluent words to try and impress God. No, we come to God as we are and we can talk to him because he fully understands where we're coming from. So the word devote means to grab hold of something and not letting go. And last week we talked about that great game of tug of war, the imagery of People competing against each other, grabbing a rope, feeling the strain, the pull on that rope, and not letting go. That's the imagery that Paul is presenting to you and to me, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, when we are committed and devoted to prayer, we're going to grab onto it as a rope, and we're not going to let go, no matter what kind of resistance and pushback we're going to get. It's easy to give up. It's easy to sign off. A lot of people do it, but it's not the right thing. And Paul is saying, he's encouraging you and me this morning to grab hold of the rope and don't let go. See and tell God those things that you need him to be involved in. So let's do that. Number two, make prayer a priority. Verse 2b, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert, alert mind. An alert mind. Alert means keeping awake. You know, it's good to do that on Sunday mornings too, right? When you're in here, man, yeah, if you're tired, you tell your brain, your heart, your body to snap out of it. Uh, one way of, of not letting your mind drift, of course, is filling in those blanks on the back of that program. That's, that just helps keep you engaged. And, and Paul is saying, even in prayer, um, he knows, man, it's tough to stay alert because how many of us know our minds are geared to wander, right? We're always looking for something. We see movement, we hear a noise, uh, there's a distraction, there's a thought, whatever the case may be, it's there to prevent us from talking to God and for God talking back to us. 
So Paul is saying, pray with an alert mind. No drifting, man. No mental drifting. That's what he's saying. F.B. Meyer put it this way, the great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but on offered prayers. That's true. How many of us never offer prayers to God? So instead of being something we do every day, like breathing, eating, you know, prayer has become the kind of thing where it's that glass-covered box on the wall, you know, where you break in case of emergency. That's how we think of prayer. We have to wait for a crisis in our life to finally, you know, God gets our attention so that we can talk back to him. Unfortunately, that should not be the case. R.A. Torrey, a former pastor, put it this way, the reason why many fail in battle is because they wait until the hour of battle. The reason why others succeed is because they have gained their victory on their knees long before the battle came. Anticipate your battles, fight them on your knees before temptation comes, and you will always have victory. It's true. Spending time with God consistently, the way I look at it, is like putting money in the bank. When a crisis comes in your family, if the refrigerator breaks down or your car needs some work, uh, if you have money in the bank, it's not a problem. It's the same thing in life. When you have a crisis that hits the fan and you've been spending time with God beforehand, it takes the edge off. That's what Paul's talking about. Being alert with an alert mind. Using that habit. And by the way, last week we talked about, you know, 21 days of prayer and fasting and establishing the habit of spending time with God. Listen, if you're overwhelmed with your reading plan, you know, if it's reading a chapter in the Old Testament and the New Testament or whatever the case may be, start small. It's better to start small and be consistent than not do it at all. And maybe you've, you know, you've backed off even this week. Maybe it started off good for a couple days and you've kind of slid off course. Pick it back up today, man. Get back on track. There's nothing wrong with that. Start with one chapter a day, whatever, and, and spend time in prayer talking to God. doesn't have to start for an hour at a time. could be a couple minutes, five minutes, whatever the case may be, but do something. Get going. Get momentum going. Get it, get it on the track. Get it in the habit form, and uh, you'll see a difference in your life. And so the alert mind is opposite of sleepy, lazy, Coldness, indifference. That's kind of where our hearts won't need to be. Praying speaks about being laser focused, you know, putting your eyes where they need to be. It's kind of like um, the military in Afghanistan. You've got a Marine sentry posting guard at the military base, and then you've got a security guard at Woodman's in Madison. Uh, the Marine in Afghanistan senses the urgency of the moment that there's an enemy outside that base that wants to destroy them. So that guard, that sentry, is going to be very, very alert, looking for anything that might attack that particular base. Why? Because he's there to protect the men and women around him. That's his purpose. Unfortunately, many of us feel like I'm a security guard at Woodman's because it's not a high risk, you know? I'm there, I'm hanging out, and if anything happens, I'm, I'm here. But there's not that tension that there's a battle raging, that there's resistance. That's the imagery that we need to have in our minds consistently that we are not on vacation spiritually. We are in a battle. And that we need to engage ourselves in locking into God, talking to him, and being alert in the process. How many of you know, man, in marriage, if there's no communication going on, that marriage is struggling. It's, it's in trouble. 
Likewise, in our relationship with the Lord, if there's no communication going on, it can't be healthy, you know? So here you have uh, a couple. Bonnie McFarland says, uh, my husband made me super angry, so what did I do? I gave him the silent treatment for seven days. Finally, on the day seven, my husband turned around and said to me, hey, we're getting along pretty great, aren't we? Well, the question is, are you really getting along, or is it superficial, right? And that's how, that's how we think, you know. I can, I can go to church once a week, and it's good. I've done my spiritual duty. Uh, God's good with that. I'm good with that, and life is good. No, 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 no. If you want a great marriage, you've got to spend time communicating. If you want a great relationship with the Lord, you've got to spend time communicating with him. That's what Paul's talking about. So... Communication is key. Number three, make prayer a thankful time. Verse 2c, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Paul, when you read his epistles, you'll find that he's always bringing this topic up about being thankful. In fact, just a couple examples. In Ephesians 5.20, he says, and give thanks for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 4, 6, he says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Those are just a couple of examples. What do you think Paul's majoring on? Well, if you go to the, to the Old Testament, you track the nation of Israel, you'll find they were not thankful. They were angry at God. They forgot God. They weren't grateful to God. And so they started building all these idols around them, worshiping these fake gods instead of worshiping the one true God. When you become unthankful, ungrateful, it's easy to drift spiritually. The Old Testament is a testament to that. And so Paul realizes that as a follower of Jesus Christ, to keep that relationship where it needs to be is that you and I need to uh, cultivate becoming thankful to the Lord. And so um, there was a man working at the post office one day, and he uh, came across a letter evidently written by a child. There was no address on it. It only said, Dear God. So what would he do with a letter like that? Well, he looked at it for a while and he thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open it up because I, I can't send it anywhere and, uh, and see what's written. So he opened it up and, and the letter said, um, Dear God, my name is Jimmy. I'm six years old. My father just passed away and my mother is having a tough time raising my sister and me. Please send $500. And at the bottom of it, he had his address written on it. Well, the postal worker's heart, man, he was broken. He thought, man, alive, I feel so bad for this kid. And so he shared the letter with his colleagues at, in that particular office. And they raised $300, and he thought, yeah, we, this is something we can do. And so they, they mailed it to Jimmy. Well, two weeks later, there's another letter that came into that post office, a Dear God letter caught the uh, postal guy's attention again. And so uh, he opened it up and read it and said, Dear God, thank you so much, but next time would you deliver the money directly to our house? Because if it goes to the post office, they automatically deduct $200. (laughs) What's Jimmy saying? What's he saying? He's saying, I didn't get what I wanted. Um, uh, God, you must have not heard me right. I said $500, right? Uh, instead of being thankful, that's how we are as human beings. We, you know, we, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and trust God for his answers and his response. That's what he's looking for. Thankful, by the way, this is the message puts it this way, stay alert with your eyes wide open in gratitude. Isn't that good? Stay alert while you're with your eyes wide open in gratitude. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Uh, we, we do that. Somebody said there's two basic prayers. Each one is one word. The first one is help. We kind of hit that last week with Jehoshaphat, right? Help, Lord. That's good. It's good to ask God for help. And the second word is thanks. Thank you. You know, if we thank the Lord more often, uh, we might get the Lord to help us more often as well. How do, we, how do you do that? How do you improve your attitude of gratitude? Well, there's, there, there's two suggestions, you know. Uh, first, you can wake up in the morning and take the first 30 seconds and say, Lord, thank you for this new day. You know, thank you that it, for the opportunities that you're going to give me today to let my light shine for you. You know, help me to live my life in a way that's honoring to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And then when you go to bed at night, you do the same thing. Lord, thank you for getting me through this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your presence in my life. And then you can go to sleep. That's pretty easy, right? Even pausing to thank God for your food before you eat it. Lord, thank you for this meal. Thank you for this food that you have provided. It all comes from you, Lord. I thank you for it. It's a good way to cultivate thankfulness, right? So let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. So there's lots to be thankful for. His presence, man, we, you know, God's presence, he promises never to leave us. Lord, we thank you for that. His provision, he provides for all of our needs. Lord, thank you for providing. His pardon, he forgives all of our sins. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. His promises, they're true. Lord, thank you that your promises are true and I can trust them. Last Sunday, we were looking at praying God's promises. This is a resource. It's back at Guest Central. And if you didn't start, you can pick it up and start anytime, by the way. But what I've done is I've written the verses out under each of the promises. And you can do that. And so you can read those verses right back to God. And it's, it's cool. And just a footnote, if you've got your uh, Praying God's Promises here, number 10's got the wrong reference, Bible reference there. Uh, 9 and 10 have the same reference, so 10's wrong. You guys can be active right now and scratch that out. Replace it with James 1.12. James 1.12. God has promised you the crown of life James 1.12 says they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Isn't that cool? So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your promises. And finally, we can thank him for his purpose. God has a plan, and you're a part of it. So, Lord, thank you for your plan that you have for my life. Number four, Paul goes on and he says, make prayer specific. He wants the church to understand um, how powerful and what a privilege it is to pray. And so he starts off with subpoint number one, we need to pray for others. In verse 3a, it says, pray for us too. Pray for us too. Now in the Greek, in the original language, there's a word there that means together or at the same time. In, the implied meaning is, this is what Paul would paraphrase, when Colossians, when you come together to worship, take time to pray together for us. In other words, corporately. United prayer honors God because the faith of one believer strengthens the other believers, and it does some pretty cool things. Like last Sunday at Awaken, for example, it was a great time of praying together, you know, praying one for another. That's a great opportunity. And that's what Paul's talking about here, praying for others. Um, Howard Hendricks was pastoring in Dallas, Texas, and they were looking for a, a junior high boys teacher for the Sunday school class. And uh, there was a guy that came along, and they put him in, and after a couple months, man, the class was just electric. And so um, Howard got together with, with, the, with the young man. He says, hey, can you, um, can you tell me your secret of turning this class around? And the young man pulled out a, a little black book. And on each page, he had a picture 
of each of his students, of the boys. And under the picture of the boy's name, there were comments that he had written down. For example, having trouble in math. So this teacher was praying for him. Another boy comes to church against his parents' wishes, and so the teacher was praying for that. Another one would like to be a missionary someday, but he doesn't think he has what it takes. And so the teacher would be praying for this young man. So the teacher says, I pray over these pages every day, and I can hardly wait to come to church each Sunday to see what God has been doing in their lives. Praying for others makes a difference. And Paul, you would say, man, Paul, he is so spiritual. What does he need prayer for? Listen, we all need prayer. We all need prayer. We need to be praying one for another. And Paul says, man, I I need it. I need it. Will you pray for me? So number two, another thing that Paul wants prayer for in verse 3b, pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. And that is why I am here in chains. Last Monday uh, night, uh, the national title for college football took place. And um, I thought it was pretty cool because the quarterback for Clemson is a vibrant follower of Christ. Starting quarterback for Alabama is a vibrant follower of Christ. They're very vocal about it. They're public about it. They're not ashamed. And so it was just a fun game to watch. I don't, I don't know if you watched that game at all, but it was cool to see. Clemson won, by the way, in case you were wondering. Anyway, Jeannie Cunning uh, writes about Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback for Clemson, and said, hey, uh, Clemson's the king of college football, and there's a video of freshman Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence that's all over social media. It says it's a video about Trevor Lawrence speaking about his faith in Jesus Christ and how it's impacted him and freed him from the pressure to put his identity in his performance on the football field. This is what Trevor says in the video. Football is important to me, obviously, but it's not my life. It's not the biggest thing in my life. I would say my faith is. That just comes from knowing who I am outside of that. No matter how big the situation is, it's not really going to define me. I put my identity in who Christ thinks I am and who I know he says I am. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what people think about me or how good they think I play. That's definitely been a big thing for me in my situation, just knowing that and having confidence that my identity is found in Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? It's amazing. And so praying for opportunities, Trevor uh, Lawrence had an opportunity to tell people about his faith in Christ. He's gone public with it. And that's what Paul is praying for right here in Colossians 4. That God give me in prison opportunities to talk about you to other people. And by the way, that's why I'm in chains here. Because I've been telling people about you. (laughs) He's not complaining. He's just saying as as a matter of fact. We need to be praying that God opens doors for us on a daily basis. Um, and you know what prayer, what, what the cool thing about prayer is too? You can be praying in Wisconsin and you might have relatives somewhere else in the country or even overseas. Your prayers reach that person. There are no geography barriers that the Lord can't get involved in. You realize that? In fact, um, I've got a nifty picture here. Uh, It's a picture of an Air Force base in Hawaii. My uncle uh, served there many years ago. 
So he's in Hawaii. His mother, my grandmother, is in Chicago. All right? How far is that? Well, that's 4,200 miles away. So my uncle took a picture of the base. And when he got the film developed, you can't see it, but I can up close here. There's a silhouette of my grandmother with her eyes closed as if she's praying. My grandmother was a woman of prayer, man. She knew how to pray. And so can you imagine my uncle, who was not serving the Lord at the time, develops this film, gets this picture, and there he sees his mom with her eyes closed praying for him. What would that do for you? Huh? You talk about encouraging. Man, God wants you to know that there are no barriers to your prayers. There may be times when it, your prayers seem to hit the ceiling and they bounce right back off again. It's not true. God has a plan. Your prayers are valuable and important. And um, praying for those opportunities, take advantage of it. In fact, you know, Paul's in prison in Acts 16 with Silas. They've been talking about Jesus, so they get arrested. They get beaten. They get thrown into a dungeon, their hands and arms in chains. They've been tortured. And at midnight, what do they decide to do? Get their violin out and start complaining. God, where are you? Why have you forgotten about me, God? We were talking to people about you, and this is the reward we get. We get stuck in this prison. What do they do? No. They don't get their violins out. They get their guitars out and their tambourines, symbolically. And they start singing worship songs to God. And they start praying out loud when thanking God for the opportunities they're going to have in prison to tell people about Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? God hears that prayer. And what's God do? He sends an earthquake. And the earthquake opens up all the chains off all the prisoners. And they're free. They're free to go. They're free to be free. Is that what they do? No. The jailer who's about to kill himself... Because in Roman culture, if the jailer didn't keep track of all the prisoners, he would lose his life in the process. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're all here. We aren't going anywhere. We're here to tell you about Jesus. The jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? Paul wasn't worried about his release he wanted the opportunity to tell the jailer. That's why he figured God put him in there. Put him in jail to tell the jailer about Jesus Christ. The jailer says, come over to my house. Let's have a pizza. Tell my family what you just told me. Got them all out of bed. They're sitting around the table. Paul tells them about Jesus going on that cross and paying for their sin debt. Paid it in full. Their sins can be forgiven. They can have eternal life in heaven by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Guess what? The entire family did. And they were baptized that very day. Isn't that cool? Praying for those opportunities. Man, we likewise can have those same opportunities. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, there is a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. That's what Paul was writing at Corinth. It's a wide open door. Man, God is giving you wide open doors to let your light shine. Finally, Paul prays for clarity. Number three, in verse four, pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. So the final request that Paul is making to the church is, hey, when I talk about Jesus, when I present the gospel to people, I want to make it clear. Now, isn't it interesting? You've got new believers in Colossae. It's a new church. These are all baby Christians. Paul's been a follower of Christ a lot longer than they have, and here he's asking them to pray for him that God would give him clarity. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't put himself on this pedestal, but he humbles himself. I need your prayers 
So when I speak the gospel, it will be clear and understandable to anybody who has to hear it. Man, I like it. I like it. And you know what? God answered those prayers because in Acts 28, 30, we see for the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He's under house arrest here. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. So while he's under house arrest, people are coming in. The guards of Rome who are watching him, he's proclaiming the gospel freely. And he says, no one's tried to stop me. So Paul's prayers had been answered and fulfilled right here in Acts 28. Yeah, man, we need to talk to God about others, and we need to talk to others about God. What a privilege that is. God has given us that opportunity. Number five, walk the talk, verse five. Walk the talk. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. What's Paul referring to here? Paul is saying that we're not living in a holy huddle, right? As a follower of Christ, we don't go on some compound (laughs) and wait it out until Jesus comes back again. You know, we isolate ourselves. That's not his plan. His plan is for you and I to live with people, believers and non-believers. And as a believer, we let our light shine. We point people to Jesus. That's what he's talking about. That's why he says live wisely among those who are not believers and then make the most of every opportunity, the opportunity that you've been praying for back in verse 4. So it's been said your life is the only translation of the Bible some people will ever read. How true is that? How is your translation doing? Is it readable? Is it understandable? Does it point people to Christ? Mahatma Gandhi put it this way several years ago, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. How's it going? When people look at you, do they see Christ? Are they reading the right translation of the Bible when they see your life at work, at school? In the neighborhood? Yeah, well, we need to walk the talk. We need to walk the talk and uh, let that light shine bright. Number six, guard the tongue. Guard the tongue. Verse six, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. What Paul is saying is we need to put a governor on our tongue. You want to be annoyed when you're driving on the expressway, all those semi-trucks, you know why they're in the passing lane? Because they're all locked in at 62 miles an hour, and some trucks are trying to push 63. Why? Because they put governors on them. Drives you crazy, doesn't it? (laughs) Or maybe you like to follow a truck, I don't know. I have a problem with it. I, I really, it, uh, my blood pressure kind of, you know, there's movement in it. You understand, right? You understand. Yeah. Well, Paul's saying, just like they put governors on trucks so they can't go fast in an expressway, you need to put a governor on your tongue. You need to, uh, you need to taste your words before they come out of your mouth. Because people are listening to what you have to say. If you say you're a follower of Christ, people are listening. And if your words don't match up to your actions and your actions don't match up to your words, it nukes the opportunity of these people. You know, they'll just shut you off. They don't want any part of it. And so Psalm 141, verse 3, the message puts it this way, Post a guard at my mouth, God. Uh, Let's read that again. Post a guard at my mouth, God, and set a watch at the door of my lips. I think that says it pretty clearly, don't you? Yeah. So, Lord, will you do that? Because your words are important. 
There's life and death in your words. People are listening to what's coming out of your mouth. Believe me, they're watching you and they're listening. And Paul is saying, man, you've got to let your conversation, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you have the right response for everybody. So how's that going in your world? How's those words coming out of your mouth? Do you have control over them or it just... Well, ask God. It's a good thing. Lord, put a, put a control, a guard on my mouth, on my tongue, so that my tongue honors you. Well, once again, we go back to Monday night. Uh, Dabo Sweeney, the coach of Clemson. The dude is uh, pretty successful with his football team at the university. And uh, it's the second national championship in the past three years. And he's an outspoken Christian. And he gave Jesus Christ credit for the success of his team on television in front of millions of people Monday night. But before that happened, back in 2014, word got out to the Freedom From Religion Foundation that Dabo Sweeney was a follower of Christ. And that... He was very public with his faith in front of his football team. And so they presented a lawsuit to Clemson University to shut that thing down. They, they faxed a letter to the university complaining that Christian worship seems to be interwoven into Clemson's football program. How, how terrible that is. And they demanded that Clemson, a public university, not only require Sweeney, to cease his allegedly unconstitutional religious activities, but also that it train the coaching staff and monitor their conduct going forwards because it's dangerous. And Sweeney, he responded in kind. He said, my players are recruited and they, they're all of many faiths. But he said, when I recruit... My recruiting is very personal. Recruits and their families want and deserve to know who you are as a person, not just what kind of a coach you are. I try to be a good example to others, and I work hard to live my life according to my faith. In other words, when they bring recruits in to Clemson, Sweeney tells them about his faith in Jesus Christ because that's who he is. He's public with it. And so... The university has made it known that um, all of this that goes on in the football team, it's purely voluntary. You know, nobody's coerced to do it. And so the Freedom from Religious Foundation, they had misconstrued important facts and made incorrect statements of the law. So the threats, they tried to scare Sweeney, uh, Dabo, says in response to the Freedom From Religion Foundation, spirituality is a personal decision for everybody. It's a free country here, and I can live my life the way I want to. I can't come to work and not be a Christian. When you go to work, do you live your faith in the closet? Do you leave it in the car? Dabo Sweeney says, nope, when I come to work, I'm coming as a Christian. And he doesn't sacrifice his beliefs even in the wake of criticism, knowing that liberal groups are actively seeking players or former players that can sue the university. And Davo could simply, you know, play it safe by checking his faith at the door. He's not doing it. It's clear. It's clear that over the years, Davo Sweeney has remained strong in his faith in Jesus Christ. Let's listen to the post-game interview where he talks about Jesus Christ here. There are a few coaches in any sport who show more joy than you do. How do you describe the joy of the moment? Well, that's, that's been my word all year, and, and I, I just tried to have been, in, I tried to be intentional with that. And uh, for me personally, joy comes from focusing on Jesus, others, and yourself. And uh, man, I mean, you know, very few people, there's so many great coaches that, that are so deserving of a moment like this that never get the chance to experience it. And um, to get to do it once and now to get to do it again, 
You know, I'm just, it's just a, it's a blessing. And, I, and I, it's just simply the grace of the good Lord to allow us to experience something like this. And I'm so happy for our team, our fans, our administration, our former players that love the ball. And, uh, and you know, there ain't never been a 15-0 team. And I know we're not supposed to be here. We're just little old Clemson. And I'm not supposed to be here. But we are, and I am. And I, how about them Tigers, man? I'm so proud of our guys, these seniors. We beat Notre Dame and Alabama. We left no doubt. And we walk off this field tonight as the first 15-0 team in college football history. And uh, all the credit, all the glory goes to the good Lord, number one. And number two, to these young people. When you get a young group of people that believe, are passionate, they love each other, they sacrifice, they're committed to, to, to a singleness of purpose, you better look out. Great things can happen, and that's what you saw tonight. After four games, you made all it. All right, all right. Hey, 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 how often on television you hear people defaming God, you know, mocking God, laughing about God, laughing about virtue, integrity. And on Monday night, you had a man of God who had the courage on public television, millions of people watching. He didn't hang up his faith in a closet. He spoke it with boldness and with conviction. How encouraging that was to see this dude living his faith, talking it and walking it, and with his mouth giving credit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, you know what? God's planted you right where you are in your situation, in your environment, to do the very same thing, to let the light of Christ be lived out through you in a very practical way. People are wanting to see the truth and hear the truth. And just like Paul, praying for clarity, praying for opportunities, we can do the same thing. God has a plan for your life, and he wants to use you to make a difference. Instead of bailing out, you know, so many people are bailing out on their faith. Let's be bold. Let's be strong. Let's be faithful to the Lord in this time in history.